Gemma, it's so wonderful to see you and to speak with you. How are you? Thank you so much for coming. I'm really well and I'm really pleased to be chatting to you both. Um, yeah, it's a real honor. So yeah, I'm delighted. <laughs> we've gotten to know your work um, through the conversations we've been hearing with you and others. And one thing that stands out is authenticity, yeah. energy, and purpose. And compassion, <clears throat> you yes. have to say. Yeah, yeah. so th those are my neuroscientific <laughs> fields that we get. And, and, and I don't even know what that means. But, but spidey not, senses? A spidey sense, yes. Yeah. <laughs> my spidey sense uh, says that uh, we're dealing with somebody who really cares and wants to make a difference. And that matters above all. So we're so glad to connect with you and kind of uh, share your story. And because it, it, in the world of healthcare, we become so myopic after years and years of training and this, you know, one little item change, one potassium and sodium and this, the humanity is lost. And so when we find people who have the humanity and can translate that into others, that's invaluable. Absolutely. Beautifully stated. Thank you. Well, that's really kind of you to say. And I'm really glad that comes across because you're right. I think with my, um, in my experience anyway, I think it can be really easy to become quite focused on the numbers uh, and the, um, the actual diseases that you're trying to treat more than the person behind the numbers and the diseases. So yeah, it, it brings me a lot of joy to, to kind of, um, to hear you say that because that's how I feel as well. Yeah. Beautiful. We love your conversations. You know, I'm really, we're, we've been friends on Instagram and on social media for a while now. And we've had the pleasure of hearing you speak about medicine in general and um, translation of all the, the information that we have so far in your patients, in your community. And it's so beautiful to see that. So Gemma, um, just for the audience, because this is our first conversation together, you are a physician in the UK, you practice somewhere close to London, what does your practice look like? So it's actually a really interesting way of working. I, I'm senior partner at a busy NHS GP surgery, National Health Service uh, family practice. And so I serve the local community and um, I have around just under 3,000 patients on my list. And I manage the list with a good friend of mine who's also a GP. We're partners together and we manage it between us, essentially two of us. So it's actually a very small practice. Most of the uh, GP practices that you see in the UK are upwards of four to 12 doctors, um, but we are a very small practice. And I think that that actually really helps me get to know my patients that little bit better. Um, and I've been there for a long time as well. I've been there, I started working there back in 2008. Um, and so I feel as I've really got to know my patient group. Um, I've seen children born, I've seen family members passing away. I've seen everything from cradle to grave. And it gives me a real insight into the needs of my patients, which I think is something that generally is is probably lacking in modern healthcare. It's much more of a sort of see one doctor and then off you go kind of model. Um, whereas I think I am fortunate to, to have the opportunity to see my patients again and again, and hopefully help them to thrive in the best way that they can. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's something amazing about this. Uh, when you have a person's life in your hand and you're seeing them evolve over time, <clears throat> for us, it's, um, it's a little different because we see them once they are having their cognitive decline or stroke. And uh, Aisha has, sees strokes patients. And we see the journey, hopefully sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse, but basically you become part of their family. It, it's like one of the most beautiful aspects of medicine Yes, all the other aspects are overwhelming and I would rather do away with it, but just that human component is just amazing. Yeah. Before we get into this, let's let's talk about your journey. How did you start? What what got you in this path? Were you a family from a background of family of physicians or you found that 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 journey on your own? Well, I have to say it's probably a little bit of both actually. So, unusually, my father's mother was a doctor. And she trained as a doctor during the Second World War. She, she was born in 1920. Um, she sort of really experienced a very different kind of life to what we're, we're used to now. And she was one of the few female medical school graduates from wartime. 
and she went and she practiced in India just after the Second World War. She lived in South Africa. She lived in Australia. And she was a really big inspiration for me. Although, interestingly, I never saw her in practice. I never actually saw her do her thing. But just hearing her stories about being a doctor, it really inspired me. Um, now, obviously, um, my grandmother is, is sort of only one member of my family. My father didn't follow in her footsteps. Um, but it, it did have an impact on me, quite a big impact. And I also remember when I was a very young child, actually, our neighbor um, fell, our elderly neighbor, she fell outside in her garden um, and she sort of, she cracked her head on, on the, the garden path. And I was with my mum. I was five years old. And my mum didn't really know what to do. And I, I don't quite know why I thought this was helpful, but I said, you need to call an ambulance and you need to go inside and get some towels. <laughs> so she said, okay. <laughs> she went to get some towels and she called the ambulance. <laughs> Um, and just one, one thing missing there was uh, boil, boil some water. <laughs> yes, the, the all important water, the boil water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, boil the water. Yeah. But so it, it it makes me laugh when I look back at it. But my mum said to me at the time, "Oh, yeah, you were really good, Gemma. I didn't quite know what to do." Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it kind of. I guess at that young age, it, it sort of helped me to think, oh, I'm, I'm, I can be quite useful if I do something like this. And, I, you know, I always wanted to do something to help people. I think most doctors feel that way, don't they? I mean, I know that, like you said yeah. at the beginning, the, the numbers get in the way and sometimes you can get so focused on, you know, on the diseases that you forget why sometimes, why you actually went into medicine on the, in the first place. And many of my friends and colleagues over the years if I sort of really stripped it back, would say, well, yeah, I went into medicine to help people really at the end of the day. And I think that was the same for me. That really was the core of it. And general practice really called to me because I love the idea of a, a colleague of mine once said, general practice is, is basically saving lives in slow motion. And I really liked that because <laughs> I felt about my work because you don't necessarily have the kind of emergency bleep and the defibrillator well sometimes you do which is quite scary when you're in a community yeah. clinic but most of the time it's really about changing hearts and minds yeah. so beautifully stated and i'm so glad you you said that Gemma, because in our lives currently with the kind of health crises that we're facing mm -hmm. that we're discussing on a regular basis a lot of times I suppose it's um, just human nature where we tend to, you know, paint with a very broad brush. And a lot of doctors, along with the broken medical system, are incriminated for what's happening. Um, but the truth is, human beings who decide to become physicians, most of them, I should say, they have very good intentions. They're very good people. They're hardworking and they go into it truly to make a difference. Um, just remembering from my medical education and from the people that we interact yeah. with, healthcare providers, they're good people. It's quite unfortunate that they're never given the resources to implement the kind of things that they want to. And so it's quite sad that you see some, you know, hatred towards doctors that way. Uh, speaking of which, we were never really trained about true preventive medicine in medical school, or at least I should speak for ourselves in the United States, where, yes, we're given information and we're taught about treatment of diseases very well, about biochemistry and physiology and so on and so forth. But when it comes to true prevention and identification of markers of disease early in life, there's really no conversation in medical school. And you are one of the few peoples, along with you know some of the other uh, people in healthcare that we know that chose a different path. And I would love for you to talk to us about how you got interested in prevention and nutrition and its application in your patient population. Yeah, so I think when I, there, there are a few markers along my particular path. Um, when I left medical school, I 
was enthusiastic but naive and I I thought that you know we'd be able to fix everybody's problems with all the things that I'd learned um, and I found when I was doing my hospital uh, placements I was working with different specialties I realized that we just didn't have the tools that I had hoped we had. I, you know, much as much as I wanted to help, I thought, oh, we're here too late or this has gone too far or, you know, I don't know what to say to this patient. So, and also on a personal level, working long hours, really uh, neglecting my own personal health because of the intensity of the work and the training, um, I realized that I was physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, and that my patients weren't necessarily getting better in the ways that I had hoped. So it was it was fueled by initially a feeling of just not feeling as though I knew enough, you know, feeling as though I've done all this training and I still don't know enough. I don't know enough. This was I used to feel a lot of the time. So I began to do additional research into psychology. I learned uh, cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. Mm -hmm. I learned solution-focused brief therapeutic approaches. Um, and I went down uh, the lifestyle medicine route really because I began to have an understanding that our minds and our bodies are inter sort of intimately linked and the decisions that we make in our lives will often then play out in the physical health of our bodies and sometimes we we you know we have no control over the environment that we're faced with whether we're born in a certain environment how we live sometimes it's very much out of our control but there are some things we can control and i began to realize how important that was with my patients when um, I actually, funnily enough, have my own health journey. I think that that's true for a lot of people. They have personal experience of something that went wrong, something that they struggled with, and then they really began to seek out some answers. So that was the, the same thing for me. Um, I knew that I needed more energy, so I decided, well, I'm going to have to start looking after myself, maybe going to bed at a reasonable time when I'm not on a night shift or a late shift, um, feeding myself with... with um, healthier foods but at the time I remember just sort of eating a bit less carbs and having lots of fish and chicken and salads um, and exercising every day I thought that's that's going to be the key to it and I did feel better I was able to have more energy on the wards um, I was pretty pleased with myself I'd worked hard to to sort of get fit and healthy and yet I also had raised cholesterol, uh, my lipid panel was raised, um, many of my markers were raised and I was hugely disappointed because I was only in my, um, what was I, in the, at the time I was in my mid-twenties mid and I thought, well, I'm at my prime of life, you know, my, my peak physical health and I still had these markers to suggest heart disease uh, that would, you know, probably plague me for the rest of my life because my grandfather died early of a heart attack and my father he hadn't died at that stage, but he was unfortunately um, going to die in a very similar way, um, a massive sudden heart attack, age 59. So oh I thought to myself, well, I haven't done enough, like, but maybe that's just my genes. I just have to accept it. And I moved on. Um, but then it was actually when I began to understand more of the benefits of plant-based nutrition that I actually did much more of a deep dive into nutrition in general. Um, and that was through my husband, who's not medical. He wanted to train for a marathon. So he decided to read Rich Roll's book, Finding Ultra, because he was getting a lot of injury, a lot of inflammation in his body. Whenever he tried to do a marathon run, he couldn't complete it. And so he decided to do what the ultra runners do, or at least the ones that he read. So Rich Roll, I think he read Brendan Brazier's book, um, which was called Thrive. Um, yes. Scott Jurek, Born to Run. Um, you know, yes. all of these people, he said, right, that's it. I'm going to go plant-based. And I was quite sceptical at the time. Uh, being the medic of the household, I suppose that was the job I was given to think, well, critically, why could this help? And what are the downsides? Um, but then I did begin to read a lot of research around that time because I was really curious. Um, he was getting a lot better with his running. He was able to improve his marathon training exponentially. And the next time he ran a marathon, he did it an hour and 10 minutes faster than the first marathon attempt that he had. Wow. I was stunned. I was 
stunned by the, the changes that I saw in him. And that piqued my interest enough because I'm not naturally an athlete. You know, you may you may realize that about me. I'm <laughs> I'm not naturally sort of a svelte or athletic person. I have actually run two marathons, by the way. Not that you'd necessarily know that, but well, then, then, then you're an animal. Yes. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> well, you know, I pushed myself to do those, and I did enjoy it in the end, but. My my real interest was my patience. I wanted to see how this was going to affect my patience. So I began to look at the guidelines, uh, guidelines on nutrition in various countries. Then I did more of a deep dive into nutritional research and the work of people like David Jenkins, who I really admire. And I began to realize, wow, plants can actually really help, not just with fueling our bodies like any food but actually the specific micronutrients phytonutrients that we that we consume can have a really important impact on our health and well-being and and prevention of disease and in some cases even disease reversal so it got me excited and um once I'd done a lot of research I began to share some of this with my patients and that's when the real magic happened for me because one of the first patients I shared this with he managed to achieve a really significant drop in his his blood pressure. He was suffering from extreme hypertension. He'd lost his job, which was really important to him. He wanted to get back on track. He wanted to improve his cardiovascular risk markers. So he was a motivated patient. And to see his blood pressure go from 180 over 100 to 120 over 80 in the space of a week to 10 days, I was completely blown away uh, through. And this is this was his you know choices through the diet um, that we had discussed. And not everybody's going to have that much of an extreme shift in their physiology over such a short period of time. But I think it was actually really powerful for me to see that because I began to realize that really powerful um and yeah I, since then i haven't looked back i've done more and more research i've shared it with my patients online and of course holistic health in general is something that's important to me um as well um as the nutrition side and uh, yeah it's been a lovely journey been able to create content for the university of winchester on you know on on diabetes and heart disease and and you know being able to share podcast uh, information and and the book of course the book has been you know a huge passion project so yeah it's been a lovely journey it, it, it's um, it's an amazing well you know what i hear there is courage um to change a path that's been laid out over time with a lot of investment a lot of sacrifice to change that direction is the most scary, it's, it's extremely scary. And most people hide that fear and they just even fortify their path even more. Just keep justifying it to themselves and years and years go by. But to change it, we were talking about to Dr. Will and, and, and many others and Essie and, other, and, and yourself, it's like that, that, that scary leap to say, I'm going to do what I truly be, believe works it's going to take a lot of time away from my natural path, but I think it's the right thing. I think uh, that's a, that's the thing that stands out is courage, the courage to take that lead because for the right thing. So we really admire that. Speaking of the book, The Plant Power Doctor, amazing. Yeah. Uh, please, everybody should definitely get that. We will put the, uh, the links and everything, information. Mm -hmm. So tell us about uh, the journey before even we get into the book. How did you get into writing the book? Well, um, you know, there's an important part of the story with that, that I missed out that I should probably clarify with you. Yes. I checked my own blood test panel after deciding myself to go plant-based after all of the research that I did. And it was finally normal after many years, after having a couple of children, after, you know, exercising less, working more. So, yes, I was really pleased with my own personal results as well. Amazing. And <clears throat> mentioning mentioning an, another anecdote about myself um from 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 running regularly in my 20s and, and experiencing a lot of bilateral knee pains that um wouldn't really subside i had to wear these big kind of knee supports every time i went for a run mm -hmm. um 
after after my plant-based journey i no longer need any kind of knee supports and i've been running um longer and longer distances during that time so um that that's just a nice little anecdote i suppose to round off the personal story that i shared with you um but also to talk to you about the book it kind of came to me <clears throat> so I had the idea for the book because I think we always want to write the book that we wish had been written or the, the book that we wish we had had. <laughs> um, and I, when I first sort of delved into nutrition literature, I began to realize that there was a huge gap in the knowledge base that my patients had and in the things that I could share with them. Um, because although there had been a big um, uh, sort of ACLM uh, lifestyle medicine movement, perhaps more so in the US, I found that here in the UK, especially when I started my research, there was really nobody talking about plant-based nutrition, at least from a doctor's point of view. And I thought this has to change. And so and this is when I even, that's the reason I started the Instagram account was because I wanted to start to disseminate this information to the general public in a way that they hadn't experienced before. And I had this thought, well, I have to write a book because I love, um, I loved reading. I actually really enjoyed reading How Not to Die by Dr. Michael Greger, which I read several years ago. And it was a fantastic deep dive. And I thought, although that's a great book, it's not the book that I can write because for me, I wanted to be able to write a book that would be, um, a bit more of a flickable book, like one that people could see bright colours, they could flick through, they could read some interesting information and then make something at the same time, um, which was a little bit sort of, um, I guess, easier for the casual reader because m many of my patients wouldn't want to necessarily dive into a really um, detailed book in that way. And so I thought I would love to be able to write um, a version of that that was bright, that was colourful, that had recipes in it and that would require less thinking and more doing essentially, which is what I really wanted to, to provide for people. And so that was the plan, that was the premise. And as it ended up turning out, it was a lot more writing than I anticipated. I ended up with nearly 600 references that I used in the book. Um, so there is actually quite a lot of science in there, but luckily, um, for me, my publisher, they let me put a, a, most of the key references in the back, but the rest of them I put on my website because there would just have been too many pages, colour pages taken up with it. But um, So so my, my publisher really came to me. Um, I had the idea, I knew what I wanted to write, and I was basically a literary, in fact, two literary agents and three publishers came to me within the space of two weeks to ask me to write a book. And... I Amazing. signed yeah. up with one literary agent and then I signed up with one publisher and then it rolled on from there. So it really was, it, it, yeah, it was, it was very fortuitous. It just came to me. Amazing. This is, um, uh, what, what a beautiful uh, situation where, you know, someone who um, does such great work on a daily basis is able to put that on paper and distribute it amongst everyone. When we wrote our book, I think that it was, it was a similar one. situation where um, we spent enough time in the clinic talking to our patients about prevention and the m message was so profound that it almost felt a bit criminal not to be able to disseminate this information to a bigger population. Um, yeah. Usually during follow-ups, I'm, I'm not sure how it is in the UK, but in the United States, you know, the the visits are about 50 minutes and then the follow-up visits are about 20 minutes. And in those 20 minutes, instead of doing a neurological examination, we would quickly go over their history. And the rest of the time we would just spend telling them about the profound effect of lifestyle on brain health and cognition and I remember as a resident, I'll speak about myself, but you know, before, before Dean and I worked together in the clinic, I would have stacks of recipes on my desk and I would have all these sources and papers for some of the skeptical patients who would say, no, I don't think this works to kind of just hand it over to them and found myself talking more about lifestyle than anything else. So, you know, having everything yeah. in a book was was a dream yeah. you know it what is. would a book look like where you want to empower someone to take care of themselves when you're not with them at their home 
Yeah, exactly. This is exactly it, Aisha. And I know that you feel that. And what's great is that you're right. You sort of feel it. I, I love my clinical practice and I really love seeing patients. It's it's the thing that still brings me the most joy. So I could I can't really ever see myself not doing that. But I felt I did feel guilt because I thought there's only so many people I can talk to about this face to face day to day. Whereas if I wrote a book, then in theory, anybody that sees it can can buy it for a loved one or, or get it from a library or, you know, wherever they can. And it just kind of it means that more people can get that message. So, yeah, I can just imagine you there in clinic with all of your beautiful recipes and <laughs> sharing them. With oh, it's, it's oh, really thank it, it, it really is a special feeling when you see the impact mm -hmm. on your patients, too. I think one of the best feelings is when somebody comes in and you show them a different path and you um, hold their hand and you meet them where they are, which is a very important point, um, and see how they transform their lives. How has your experience been when patients implement a whole food plant-based diet on, in their lives? It's been really interesting to see. And I like that you said you have to meet them where they're at, because I find that that is very true. Um, over the years in my clinical practice, I've come to understand that people like to see their doctor and like their doctor to guide them. But nobody really deep down likes being told what to do, especially if it's not in alignment with what they want to do. And so it's it's almost a dance that you that you do with your patient uh, to discover more about the things that are important to them and the things that make them feel as though they want to feel better and it's different for every person um i actually created my own framework for helping to bring up these kinds of conversations um and it's really helpful i find with, for clinicians to, to as a framework to think about how to have these conversations with their patients um, and I'd love to share it with you it's not it's not something that's in my book it's something more for uh, clinicians and healthcare professionals but it's a really okay. useful thing okay so um, it's called blend it um, and blend it I'll tell you what it stands for and then I'll just I'll briefly go into a bit more detail so blend it stands for believe uh, listen evoke, no bossing, desire, information, and timed. So those are the words that we need to remember from blend it. Um, but but what, it, what it really sort of encapsulates is be for believe. Um, you, you really do have to believe that your patient is capable of making a change in their lives. Mm -hmm. And that sounds obvious to say, but in actual fact, a lot of clinicians get really caught up in the idea that my patients won't listen to me, um, they won't change anything, they can't change anything, um, it's just you know difficult life syndrome, they're not going to do anything different. And when we start out with that kind of mindset, it can be really hard then to empower your patient to, to make the changes that they want to make. So, so belief is important both for the practitioner and for the patient. The patient also will have to believe that they're capable of change. And encouraging words from their medical practitioner is one of the steps that they can use to help them understand that they are capable of making changes. And I think we do really underestimate the power of that um, that, that doctor-patient relationship. Um, I read a study in a behavioral um, uh, article that said that um, that sort of relationship between the doctor and patient could potentially be as powerful as the placebo effect in terms of actually creating positive outcomes for a consultation. Um, and we know how, how powerful the placebo effect can be on the physiology um, in, from various clinical trials and pharmaceutical trials. So yeah, it's something that I think is really important to be aware of, that, that your interaction with your patient makes a big difference. Um, so L is listen. Um, and that is really the, the fundamental thing about any patient experience and interaction is actually listening to them first. Um, and I think that that gets easier with time because as a, as a newly qualified doctor, um, you have so much going on in your own head. You have so many different things that you're thinking of or trying to exclude or rule out. Um, and you are so focused on making the diagnosis and giving the patient the management plan that it's hard for you to step back and actually just listen 
to what they've got to say and what they're telling you. Because um, if you give them the chance to explain their situation from their point of view, many times they will often give you the answers that you're seeking. Um, I found that to be true even in the first two or three minutes of a consultation. If you just let them speak, they will basically pretty much tell you what you need to know uh, to then guide you into further management. And so that's really important. So listen. Um, e stands for evoke. And this is something that is a little bit different from what you might normally learn in medical school. And what it does is it, it it's a way for you to help them imagine a better future because often they have been stuck in um, a certain condition or a pain or an issue and it's hard for them to get their head and their mind out of the current situation that they're in but asking simple questions um, like for example if they if they're struggling with a lifestyle change, if they're struggling with a neurological condition or um, depression or diabetes or whatever it is, you could just ask them to um, remember a time at which they found it easier to live with this condition um, or a time that they felt better than they do now and what helped them in that moment to feel better. And they may they may have a, a condition that, that is not going to get better easily, but to, to remind them of a time that they felt psychologically better or a time that they felt stronger is really helpful because it can allow them to then begin to evoke that kind of future situation for themselves. Um, and it's, it's, it's a small thing. It, it doesn't take very long. It will take less than 30 seconds, but it gives them the opportunity to expand their idea of what they're capable of in that moment. So that's an important one. Um, N, no bossing, um, that's hard to do, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's true for doctors, isn't it? Because we just, we really want to help so much and we, it's very tempting for us to just tell people what to do. Um, yeah. but, but I would say it's important not to do that because um, if they're going to be truly on board, then they, they want to have to make that choice themselves. And I, it's it's so true of a number of things, but... Um, I find it most helpful to think about sort of patient habits, things like um, smoking or drinking alcohol um, or their exercise habits, you know, asking them the questions, things like, have you, have you noticed that you feel different when X, Y, and Z? So if they're, if they're drinking heavily, you, you do it, you know, you do a questionnaire and say, well, no, how much, how much alcohol are you drinking at the moment? And they say, oh, well, you know, I've had, oh three three pints a day every day and you're thinking to yourself god that's way too much alcohol that's not good for your brain health that's not good for you know your body but rather than immediately saying that's not good for you um i think it's it's helpful to ask the patient so you can say to them um you know have you ever noticed how you feel the morning after you've you've had a drink or have you noticed any differences in 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 your day-to-day -day interactions after having had this much alcohol or is there anything that you've noticed that, you, that or your family have noticed that you'd like to share and it makes them think and then share with you some of the things that they might have been thinking about but not saying and i think that that's that's one of the things that doctors well, I, I find it really helpful myself to remember is that if you tell your patients what to do, it forces them to vocalize the opposite. Um, and it actually brings them into a, a more of a staunch position of not changing. Yeah, so confrontation. It, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a confrontation. And, you know, if you say to your patient, well, you know, whole food plant-based diets have been shown to be really helpful for diabetes prevention and reversal. Um, so you should really you know, do this and then give them the information. They'll say, oh, well, you know, that's too hard and it's just rabbit food. And, um, you know, I've been told X, Y, and Z. So you force them into justifying their current position um, rather than allowing them to think about the possibilities for the future. So, so that's, that's an important one. Um, and then the D in Blender is desire. And it's about building their desire for change. So once you've got them hooked on the idea that they can change, once you've explored their ideas about how they can change and what they've noticed, uh, and you've got them to imagine what a positive future could look like, you build that desire uh, by asking them more questions about the things that they're looking forward to, the things that they will enjoy about their new lifestyle changes or whatever it is that you've discussed with them. And again, it's just another way of building that desire um, in sort of in terms of behavior change. And then the last bit, it, blend it, 
Um, I is information. So that's when you basically say to them, are you interested to know more information? Is this something that you would like? And if they say yes, then that's your permission to share resources, depending on the patient, what you think they would resonate with most. And then T is for time or timing. It's really helpful with any kind of behavior change to give a quite a specific time frame, or at least to, to give them to, the time to decide on a specific time frame for themselves. And if you can, it also helps with accountability if you can bring them back. So once they've made a commitment, once they've said, actually, you know, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to be done you know, by this time, then it's quite great to be able to bring them back and say, well, let's, uh, let's check your blood parameters again um, in that time frame that you have given me. Um, and then we can chat about how you found it. So it's a lovely way of creating accountability to help motivate them further in those first few difficult steps towards change. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, I'm, so as a behavioral neurologist and I'm, I'm writing a book on, we're writing a book on behavior change and all, this is beautiful. I yes. mean, it takes into account all the aspects of, of change and, and it's total complexity. I tell you, Jiva, I, I see completely different perspective. There are people who just write, you know, books and then you had the interest to truly work it in your, in your mind and your work how to translate. And that's the most important thing. I think that needs to be another publication, perhaps another book, or at least a paper for I it. I say blended. We, we, we fully support blended. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah, it is. And, it you is. know, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so happy that we have a lot of uh, residents and medical students listening to this podcast and people in the field of healthcare, and for them to to hear you speak about the complexities and the nuance that we need to introduce in our conversations and interactions on a day-to-day -day basis is so important. It's so easy to say things don't work, you know? Mm. And there are a lot of people who basically shun away the idea of lifestyle medicine because it says it's too hard, it doesn't work, people are not ready about it. You know, you were talking about the, the B in blended, and I remembered a study it was essentially a, a questionnaire that was given to physicians about their proclivities of addressing lifestyle when it came specifically to cholesterol. And that survey showed that most doctors don't recommend lifestyle or dietary changes to be specific to their patients because they don't think that patients can actually do that. They don't think that people have the capacity to change. Mm -hmm. So all of these gems are so beautifully put together. Uh, the belief actually beautiful uh, the belief actually starts with ourselves what yes. happens is as physicians we're so committed to our craft that anything outside of what we've done for 16 17 years of education is is a little bit of a threat mm -hmm. and so we actually start creating belief systems towards what confirms it's confirmation bias right confirms yeah. our own paths and negates any different path. So first of all, we have to believe that something works ourselves. And, and beauty is, okay, here's the beauty. Books like yours, hopefully ours and, and many others, and, and, and more stories coming out where people actually change their lives will have enough of a dissonance where that false belief can't be brought to the surface. Meaning the belief that, oh, the doctor's saying, Oh, we can't change people. People can't change themselves. They can't change their lifestyle. Well, we see that, that that's not true anymore. We see that if you just listen to people, that second one, the L, oh, my, my PhD is on the L. My PhD is on the L. Yeah, so the, the, the way people do research, I, I always bring this up. So in, in the United States, they do these surveys for years on in Boston and Harvard or somewhere like that, tough to on 50 year old white men, and then they apply it to 70 year old Hispanic women and they say they failed. <laughs> no, we didn't listen to the particular people. I mean, I don't mean by race or gender or this or that, to the person in front of you. And if you listen to the person in front of you, truly listen, not with a priori judgment, they will tell you, they will tell you what, what the need is. And then you can go to the next level. So in research, the, the concept that, that, that's uh, popular and that what we're promoting in the communities that we're working in, it's called CBPR, Community-Based Participatory Research. 
participatory means you listen to the people and then you implement research. So your ideas are absolutely beautiful. And it speaks to your commitment because you don't have to do the extra work of, okay, now I have to think about how truly to apply to people. I just have to put out a book and do see. No, we love you for, for this level of commitment. Absolutely. And it's important. And it feeds our soul, doesn't it, Gemma? I've heard you speak about that on your Instagrams, on your conversations of how empowered you feel as an individual when you when you implement, um, you know, these these gifts that you're talking about, don't you? Oh, exactly. You know, that's a really good point, and I think it's one that a lot of doctors who are who are young and they're kind of getting into the profession and feeling daunted by the level of burnout that they see is the idea of actually, the, the, the truth of it is, if you can aim to come at your practice with a level of compassion and interest in the person sitting in front of you, then it actually becomes a lot easier to practice medicine in that way because you know that you're doing it for a specific reason that's, that's, that's over and above just you know the facts that are presented to you. You're doing it um, so that they can get something from you, so that they can actually um, make the changes. And if you if you come at it with that compassion, um, it actually does make the day to day life a lot easier. And I think that's one of the things that I, I think I really hope comes across, certainly in the book, is that, like you said, Dean, it's possible for people to make changes. And I put a patient story. Um, in the back of every single chapter, because I wanted to, for people to see that actually, you know, there are real people that look just like you and me that can make these changes in their lives who had faced difficulties, who had really challenging situations, but were still able to make the changes that we we're talking about. Um, and just to know that gives you so much more satisfaction in your practice because you feel as though you're actually making a difference. You feel as though the reason that you went into this profession is actually being fulfilled rather than feeling frustrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. So that's a lot of work. <laughs> and sometimes when, um, when you choose a path that is less traveled, um, that essentially means extra work. Um, and especially if the system is not um, gauged towards it. You, mm -hmm. Like you said earlier, you know, you have, um, you have the privilege of having your own practice and you have, you know, someone who um, helps you with that. Um, does that make it easier or do you, do you still feel some impediments uh, because of how the healthcare system has been implemented in the world? Yeah, there are definite impediments. And I have to say that, again, I work in a different healthcare system to you, um, but there have been a lot of doctors feeling really frustrated and worn out, um, burnt out through um, what you'd call compassion fatigue, I suppose, just feeling completely as though you know, that they, they can't do a good enough job. There's always going to be more um, admin, more paperwork, less time. Um, and there's also been a lot of, um, sort of in the media, actually, perhaps more so in the UK. I don't know if it's the same in the US, but there's been a lot of general physician bashing by um, big sort of tabloids saying, you know, mm -hmm. there's a narrative that we're lazy or that we're earning too much for what we do or that we're never open. People can't get appointments. And the truth of the matter is that there has been a healthcare crisis coming on for quite some time. And then the pandemic hit and it got a lot worse in the sense that you know, in the UK, we're a small island, and yet we've been offering in general practice 3.1 million extra um, family physician appointments um, but compared to 2019 in 2022. And, you know, on top of that, uh, the, the vaccine appointments has been probably about 7 million more appointments in, in primary mm -hmm. care. And there's, I don't remember the numbers now, but there's around 1,500 less full-time equivalent general practitioners working in the system as there were back then. Um, and for a small island like ours, that makes a big difference when you're talking about physician numbers. And unfortunately, you know, it is a, a system that is struggling. And, and I think that I do see that from some of the online uh, talk I see on, you know, from other doctors that are working in the US healthcare system, that there are different pressures, um, but but still that there's a lot of a lot of things that take you away from that doctor-patient relationship. Mm -hmm. 
which is, I think, integral to enjoyment of the profession, uh, at least from my point of view. Uh, that's really the main thing that brings me to the profession is my time with my patients. Um, and, you know, I suppose my advice for people who are struggling would be to certainly recognize your own psychological limits and mm -hmm. take a step back if you need to, uh, so that you can really focus on your mental health above all else. Um, I don't know how you feel about this, but I know when I'm feeling stressed, when I'm feeling anxious or when I'm feeling worked up or my list is running late or I've got too much to do and I've got 45 patients that I'm seeing that day and they're all really complex and they've got mental health issues and they've got uh, breaking bad news, whatever it is, if you find yourself feeling overwhelmed, the day just gets worse and worse and you just feel less able to cope with what's in front of you. And, and so, you know, we're all going to have bad days from time to time. But I think the bottom line for me when dealing with these situations has always actually been to just take a moment, to take a breath and to connect to my values. Now, that sounds strange and counterintuitive, because if you take a moment and you take a breath, then the next patient's going to be even later. But actually, you need to find that moment for yourself in order to give the best of yourself. And I've found certainly that if I've had a patient who's been really anxious, who's been um, bearing their soul, that, that in itself is a huge privilege as a doctor, to have somebody open up to you in this way. And it's only natural that it would impact you, that it would have an effect on your mental well-being. In those kinds of situations, I take a moment for myself. I just take a moment, maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute, to just breathe, to just be, and to just try to empty my mind completely so that the next patient that comes in, I can give my best to them as well. and. The patients do appreciate that. Um, and another top tip, which I'll tell for, the, for your listeners who are in a very busy clinic, one of the things that I do, which I found really sort of shifting my practice, is rather than apologizing for running late, which is what I used to do, I used to say, I'm so sorry I'm running late, I'm so sorry. I instead say, thank you so much for your patience. Thank you. Uh, come in and have a seat. I really appreciate your patience. And you know what? It, it completely shifts the way that they feel as they come in. Um, and it really helps you because you're thanking them, you know, and they feel appreciated in the fact that they've, you know, even though if they don't feel patient and they feel annoyed, it kind of dissipates that a little bit and it gets you on the right footing then to really get them to share what, what's on their mind. So, yeah, it's, it's little tips like that that I think can actually make your day go a lot smoother. And the values yeah. piece as well, I think, is really important. So I find myself just saying the top three values that are on my mind that day, in my head, as I breathe, I'll just repeat the three words in my mind. And it just really calms everything down, allows me to be there for the next person as they come in. Beautiful. You're absolutely amazing. So we're completely aligned with everything. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, um, uh, we actually have taken, we're going to take, we have the luxury uh, or the blessing of our healthcare system supporting us a bit. We're going to take a couple of months off because we've been quite overwhelmed. Yeah, the past yeah. the past few years have been quite um, overwhelming. And, um, you know, the the true definition of burnt out, you know, we, we yeah. actually felt it. And we have two teenagers, uh, amazing teenagers. They're highly driven and all that, but it's just been uh, overwhelming. So we're going to take some time off to, to heal ourselves because if you can't, it's almost triage. If you can't heal yourself, if you can't, get in a better position, then you can't be there for other people. Yeah. I wanted to kind of point to one thing you brought up, which is the language in your head, the language you share with others. Just a shift in that language is not just a shift in language. It's you taking yourself from this universe to a parallel universe <laughs> by being apologetic, which is good. It's humble. and, and it's uh, But you put yourself in a defense, which puts you in a you know, sympathetic fight or flight kind of a position and puts them in a place where there's something wrong to a place of gratitude, kindness, connectivity, and love. It's not about those words. It's about the state of mind that you must occupy because that state of mind matters above all. It's the doorway to the behavior, to the emotions, to the states 
that follow from there. So we, I love that approach. That it seems like a subtle thing, but it's not. It's a, it's a parallel universe that you just created. A shift, you know. I love that. And and you have to be, you have to have that kindness to yourself because then that kindness translates to everybody else. Uh, you're 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 absolutely brilliant in in every sense, and you're. I'm sure that this is kind of translating into your family life because you have you have a big you have a family. So we'd love to know about how how your your um, you know your life is going with your family and kids and everything. Oh, you are so kind. I love I love that you said about the parallel oh, universe it's, it's, as well. Yes, it's true. It's true. It really shifts everything around, doesn't it? And it's it's so much more powerful than the simple words that you say, um, both inside your own head and to the people around you. So yes, I have a family. I have two sons. Um, they are now ten and seven years old. So. Um, they are getting a bit older, a little bit more independent, but obviously they're not in their teens yet. That's a, a whole other sort of phase of, of their lives to come. Um, yes. But they are, yeah, I'm really proud of them, actually. You know, they, they like any kids, they'll have various challenges. Um, and it's just a real privilege, I think, to see them grow. And much as I feel my patients teach me a lot, I feel that my children teach me a lot as well because, you know, perhaps much like an intimate partner, I've, I have a husband, we've been together for 20 years, your sort of significant other and your children, they hold a mirror up to you and like, you often show them your very worst parts and um, it, it, you sort of realise that actually, you know, those are things that, that you're projecting as much onto them as they are onto you. And so you really have, they make you do the work. I feel like, you know, my children, my husband, the people closest to me, they really cause me to reflect on who I am as a person and who I want to show up to be as a person. And there's, you know, that that's probably a lot more powerful, certainly than than um, many of the other relationships that I've had in my life because you know they, they they sort of they know you so well and you know them so well and it's about trying to show up as your best self in those relationships which I think is a real learning tool actually absolutely I completely agree with you and I've felt that personally in my life as well um, I always tell myself and tell our children that the language that you build in, in the house, at home, and the language that you have in your solitude, how you speak to yourself reflects mm -hmm. how you will speak to other individuals. So mm -hmm. you and I are both very lucky to have families where we hold each other accountable and we stop ourselves from using words frivolously with them and with ourselves. And mm -hmm. that, um, that um, depository or the well of emotions and the words that you share with your patients on a regular basis, those 45 people that you see every single day, that is filled at home. And that is filled in those solitude moments where you speak to yourself. So it's so important to have that kind of a bond in a relationship. And it makes it really hard when you don't. Um, um, and, and and I think we should all take some time to, to fill that well, because... Yeah. Definitely. Sometimes it just goes barren and you can't really give off of yourself. You can't be empathetic if you don't, if you don't show compassion towards yourself. Those are so some true. of the things that I've just recently learned because we're living in such a fast paced life, but you realize that you come to a point where self-care and self-love and the way you speak to yourself and the way you speak to your children or the way you teach your children to speak to you is so important. It just reflects in the totality of who you, who you are as an individual and as a physician, definitely. Yeah, it's very true. And that they can often be our biggest teachers in that way, I find. Um, and you're right, I think the words that we say to ourselves really do... I mean, the, uh, our children don't really do what we say, do they? They... they, they, they <laughs> No, they, 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 they watch us they watch us <laughs> and yes. how we yeah. behave yeah. and they're very good at, at watching us and how we how we do things and so Absolutely. yeah I feel as though my sons they've both been real teachers in that regard and I'm, it's lovely to actually start feeling a lot of pride for how they're showing up in the world um 
because you know as a parent you want to be able to control all sorts of things and you want to make sure much as with your patients you know you want to make sure that they do the things that you think are best but actually um if you come if you show up with compassion and love ultimately that is the main thing i think that's going to serve them well for the rest of their lives and yeah. i think sort of showing up for yourself with that same compassion and love is just as important don't be hard on yourself if you're finding things are too much take that time for yourself take that moment to breathe take that sabbatical whatever it is that you need so that you can show up as your best self in your relationships and at work because you know when you're on your deathbed and you're looking back on your life you know you'll you'll be proud i'm sure especially you two as a couple of all the things that you've done to serve your community and to support the people around you but as well the main thing i'm sure you'll be thinking about is your children your family the people that you really love around you and wanting to make sure that you've nurtured those relationships and you know much as we are passionate about the things that we do it's so important to really be mindful of the things that really make us tick. And personal relationships, of course, come above all else. Relationships with ourselves, relationships with the people that we that we share our lives with. And that has to come before anything else, I think. Yeah, I love that. Oh, absolutely. Beautiful. I mean, uh, all these leadership conversations you hear on internet, on social media and everything. And I tell my kids... No master's or PhD program in leadership will teach you leadership and, and more than what you do at home. Mm. Those difficult conversations with your sister or your, your brother or your, your spouse, how you actually lead that is critical. We do a session on value, values. We did one last month. Yeah. That was interesting. Uh, so uh, we have about uh, 15 values and then like you, distilling down to a few and then they go home. They go to school with positive, proactive, productive, powerful, epic day, you know, that kind of stuff. Those things matter. Those are the, that's the language you're going to live with. And then, of course, when we fail, there are times that we get angry and all of that. Coming back and fixing yourself and correcting yourself and calming yourself and healing yourself. And, and you're, that's absolutely right. I tell you, I, you are uh, definitely this, the, your next book should be about blended and, 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 and this wisdom that, that just, <laughs> Imbues yes. through you. You really need oh. to write about that, Gemma. That's such a gift. I think yeah. I think people oh, are going can. to benefit from it so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You're, well, you know what? You have my permission to use it if ever you want to. <laughs> oh, I, it, no, I I definitely think it 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 definitely has added to the way I I see things, and I and I'm so grateful to you for sharing that. Your, your beautiful book is called The Plant Power Doctor, A Simple Prescription for a Healthier You. It is such a beautiful book. It, the layout is gorgeous. You're absolutely right. I think, you know, the first thing that people should do is get it and just flick through the pages and see the beauty of all the, the, the information that you've laid out um, so well. And it also includes very delicious recipes and you've made it very palatable. You've put the science in a way where it's understandable. People don't get overwhelmed. I remember when we were writing our book also, we, there were so many references. That's another thing. People you know, forget how much evidence we have for the consumption of whole food plant-based diet and better health. We had to actually reduce the, the references and the font size to put it in the back of the book because it might seem overwhelming. But every statement you've said in the book is backed with profound science and um, you've, you've, uh, you've just laid it out beautifully. So people can get it from the, their bookstores. It was released in the United States in uh, earlier in May. Is that correct? Yes. Um, well, I think, you know, I think it's actually been available since last month, but um, I started to promote it this month. So, yes, it's it's available from um, Barnes and Noble, Target um, and Amazon, obviously, but support your local bookshop if you can ask them to order it in. Um, yes. And yeah, it's it's available throughout the US. And of course, the book depository, that's where people have previously been able to get it from. You can get it from there as well. Yes, absolutely. We'll put all the information about the show notes, the plant power doctor. We'll make sure that, you know, the, the show notes and the episode has all the information about your beautiful book. Um, this has been such a pleasure. Um, and I personally have learned so much from you, Gemma. I've, I've heard you speak, you know, many times, um, especially with Rich, our mutual friend. 
um, in some other podcasts, but this was special because, you know, just connecting with you as as a mom, as a physician who sees patients on a daily basis, just like we do. And more say, importantly, she said mom in a British way. Just she's a mom. Free- yes. I heard that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Heard, so yeah. She didn't say it the American way. She didn't say mom. She said mom. So I'm like, I love it. She's, she's a beautiful yeah. mom. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I love that. Hey. I love that so much. I love that. I did, I did, I did, I did. Um, and it's 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 just a it's a gift. Um, tell us what people should expect when they when they read your story, when they read your book. Well, I hope that they um, I hope that they come at it with just the expectation of learning something new because within the pages there's going to be hopefully something that they didn't know before and something that will spark an interest to help them want to make some changes to their lives, to feel better, to live in alignment with the things that will bring them more joy, more passion, uh, more compassion and hopefully a healthier, happier life. Beautiful. Beautiful. We are so grateful to you to spend this time with us and uh, we hope to see you again. This is just the beginning. Oh, I hope so. And you're welcome in London anytime. <laughs> oh, we, we definitely will. We'll we definitely, definitely will. Yes, yes. <laughs> Much love to you, Gemma. See Much you very love. soon. Bye.